Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today the story of John G. Patton, the missionary to the South Sea Island cannibals, islands that uh, were formerly known as the New Hebrides, now the nation of Vanuatu. We're on chapter 26. It's called The Defying of Nahak. Shortly thereafter, war was again declared by the inland people attacking our harbor people. It was an old quarrel, and the war was renewed and continued long after the cause thereof had passed away. Going amongst them every day, I did my utmost to stop hostilities, setting the evils of war before them, pleading with the leading men to renounce it. Thereon arose a characteristic incident of island and heathen life, One day I held a service in the village, where morning after morning their tribes assembled and declared that if they would believe in and follow the Jehovah God, he would deliver them from all their enemies and lead them into a happy life. There were present three sacred men, chiefs, of whom the whole population lived in terror, brothers or cousins, heroes of traditional feats, um, professors of sorcery, and claiming the power of life and death, health and sickness, rain and drought, according to their will. On hearing me, these three stood up and declared they did not believe in Jehovah, nor did they need his help, for they had the power to kill my life by nahak, that is, uh, sorcery or witchcraft, if only they could get possession of any piece of the fruit or food that I had eaten. This was an essential condition of their black art. Hence, the peel of a banana or an orange and every broken scrap of food is gathered up by the natives, lest it should fall into the hands of the sacred men and be used for nahak. This superstition was the cause of most of the bloodshed and terror upon Tana. And being thus challenged, I asked God's help and determined to strike a blow against it. A woman was standing near with a bunch of native fruit in her hand, like our plums, called kwankwore. I asked her to be pleased to give me some, and she, holding out a bunch, said, Take freely what you will. Calling the attention of all the assembly to what I was doing, I took three fruits from the bunch, and taking a bite out of each, I gave them one after another to the three sacred men, and deliberately said in the hearing of all, You have seen me eat of this fruit. You have seen me give the remainder to your sacred men. They have said they can kill me by Nahak, but I challenge them to do it, if they can, without arrow or spear, club or musket. For I deny that they have any power against me or against anyone by their sorcery. Well, the challenge was accepted. The natives looked terror-struck at the position in which I was placed. The ceremony of Nahak was usually performed in secret, the Tanese fleeing in dread as Europeans would from the touch of the plague. But I lingered and eagerly watched their ritual. As the three chiefs arose and drew near to one of the sacred trees to begin their ceremonial, the natives fled in terror, crying, Missy! Yahweh! Alas, Missy! But I held on at my post of observation. Amidst wavings and incantations, they rolled up the pieces of the fruit 
from which I had eaten, in certain leaves of this sacred tree, into a shape like a waxen candle. Then they kindled a sacred fire near the root, and continued their mutterings, gradually burning a little more and a little more of the candle-shaped things, uh, wheeling them round their heads, blowing upon them with their breaths, waving them in the air, and glancing wildly at me as if expecting my sudden destruction. Wondering whether, after all, they did not believe their own lie, for they seemed to be in dead earnest. I, more eager than ever to break the chains of such vile superstition, urged them again and again, crying, Be quick! Stir up your gods to help you! I am not killed yet! I am perfectly well! At last they stood up and said, We must delay until we have called all our sacred men. We will kill Missy before his next Sabbath comes round. Let all watch, for he will soon die, and that without fail. I replied, Very good. I challenge all your priests to unite and kill me by sorcery or nahak. If on Sabbath next I come again to your village in health, you will all admit that your gods have no power over me and that I am protected by the true and living Jehovah God. Every day throughout the remainder of that week the conches were sounded, and over that side of the island all their sacred men were at work trying to kill me by their arts. Now and again messengers arrived from every quarter of the island inquiring anxiously after my health, wondering if I was not feeling sick, and great excitement prevailed amongst the poor, deluded idolaters. Sabbath dawned upon me peacefully, and I went to that village in more than my usual health and strength. Large numbers assembled, and when I appeared, they looked at each other in terror, as if it could not really be I myself still spared and well. Entering into the public ground, I saluted them to this effect. My love to you all, my friends. I have come again to talk to you about the Jehovah God and his worship. The three sacred men, on being asked, admitted that they had tried to kill me by Nahak, but had failed. And on being questioned why they had failed, they gave the acute and subtle reply that I also was myself a sacred man, and that my God, being the stronger, had protected me from their gods. Addressing the multitude, I answered thus, Yea, truly, my Jehovah God is stronger than your gods. He protected me and helped me. For he is the only living and true God, the only God that can hear or answer any prayer from the children of men. Your gods cannot hear prayer, but my God can, and will hear and answer you, if you will give heart and life to him, and love and serve him only. This is my God, and he is also your friend, if you will hear and follow his voice. Having said this, I sat down on the trunk of a fallen tree and addressed them. Come and sit down all around me, and I will talk to you about the love and mercy of my God and teach you how to worship and please him. Two of the sacred men then sat down, and all the people gathered round and seated themselves very quietly. I tried to present to them ideas of sin and of salvation through Jesus Christ, as revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. The third sacred man, the highest in rank, a man of great stature and uncommon strength, had meantime gone off for his warrior's spear and returned, brandishing it in the air and poising it at me 
I said to the people, Of course, he can kill me with his spear. But he undertook to kill me by Nahak, or sorcery, and promised not to use against me any weapons of war. And if you let him kill me now, you will kill your friend, one who lives among you and only tries to do you good, as you all know so well. I know that if you kill me thus, my God will be angry and will punish you. Thereon I seated myself calmly in the midst of the crowd, while he leaped about in rage, scolding his brothers and all who were present for listening to me. The other sacred men, however, took my side, and as many of the people also were friendly to me and stood closely packed around me, he did not throw his spear. To allay the tumult and obviate further bloodshed, I offered to leave with my teachers at once and in doing so I ardently pled with them to live at peace. Though we got safely home, that old sacred man seemed still to hunger after my blood, and for weeks thereafter, go where I would, he would suddenly appear on the path behind me, poising in his right hand that same Goliath spear. God only kept it from being thrown, and I, using every lawful precaution, had all the same to attend to my work, as if no enemy were there, leaving all other results in the hands of Jesus. This whole incident did doubtless shake the prejudices of many as to sorcery, but few even of converted natives ever get entirely clear of the dread of Nahak. Chapter 27, A Perilous Pilgrimage the other mission station on the southwest side of Tana had to be visited by me from time to time. Mr. and Mrs. Matheson there were both in a weak state of health, having a tendency to consumption. On this account, they visited Anitium several times. They were earnestly devoted to their work and were successful as far as health and the time allowed to them permitted. At this juncture, a message reached me that they were without European food, and a request to send them a little flour if possible. Well, the war made the journey overland impossible. A strong wind and a high sea round the coast rendered it impracticable for my, uh, my boat to go. The danger to life from the enemy was so great that I could not hire a crew. I pled, therefore, with Nowar and Manuman and a few leading men to take one of their best canoes and themselves to accompany me. I had a large, flat-bottomed pot with a close-fitting lid, and that I pressed full of flour. And tying the lid firmly down, I fastened it right in the center of the canoe, and as far above watermark as possible. All else that was required, we tied around our own persons. Sea and land being as they were, it was a perilous undertaking, which only dire necessity could have justified. They were all swimmers, but as I could not swim, the strongest man was placed behind me to seize me and swim ashore if a crash came. Creeping round near the shore all the way, we had to keep just outside the great breakers on the coral reef and were all drenched through and through with the foam of an angry surf. We arrived, however, in safety within two miles of our destination, where lived the friends of my canoe's company, but where a very dangerous sea was breaking on the reef. 
Here they all gave in and protested that no further could they go, and truly their toil all the way with the paddles had been severe. I appealed to them that the canoe would for certain be smashed if they tried to get on shore, that the provisions would be lost, and some of us probably drowned. But they turned to the shore and remained for some time thus watching the sea. At last their captain cried, Missy, hold on, there's a smaller wave coming. We'll ride in now. My heart rose to the Lord in trembling prayer. The wave came rolling on. Every paddle with all their united strength struck into the sea. Next moment our canoe was flying like a seagull on the crest of the wave towards the shore. Another instant, and the wave had broken on the reef with a mighty roar and rushed past us, hissing in clouds of foam. My company were next seen swimming wildly about in the sea, Manuman, the one-eyed sacred man, alone holding on by the canoe, and nearly full of water, with me still clinging to the seat of it, and the very next wave likely to devour us. In desperation I sprang for the reef and ran for a man half wading, half swimming to reach us, and God so ordered it that just as the next wave broke against the silvery rock of coral, the man caught me and partly swam with me through its surf, partly carried me till I was set safely ashore. Praising God, I looked up and saw all the others as safe as myself, except Manuman, my friend, who was still holding on by the canoe in the face of wind and sea and bringing it with him. Others ran and swam to his help. The paddles were picked up amid the surf. A powerful fellow came toward me with the pot of flour on his head, uninjured by water. The chief who held on by the canoe got severely cut about the feet and had been badly bruised and knocked about. But all the rest escaped without further harm, and everything that we had was saved. Amongst friends at last, they resolved to await a favorable wind and tide to return to their own homes. Singing in my heart unto God, I hired a man to carry the pot of flour and soon arrived at the mission station. Supplying the needs of our dear friends, Mr. and Mrs. Matheson, whom we found as well as could be expected, we had to prepare, after a few hours of rest, to return to our own station by walking overland through the night. I durst not remain longer away, lest my own house should be plundered and broken into. Though weak in health, my fellow missionaries were both full of hope and zealous in their work, and this somewhat strange visit was a pleasant blink amidst our darkness. Before I had gone far on my return journey, the sun went down, and no native could be hired to accompany me. They all told me that I would for certain be killed by the way. But I knew that it would be quite dark before I reached the hostile districts, and that the heathen are great cowards in the dark, and never leave their villages at night in the darkness, except in companies for fishing and such-like tasks. I skirted along the seashore as fast as I could, walking and running alternately, and when I got within hearing of voices, I slunk back into the bush till they had safely passed, and then groped my way back near the shore, that being my only guide to find a path. Having made half the journey, I came to a dangerous path, almost a perpendicular, up a great rock, around the base of which the sea roared deep. With my heart lifted up to Jesus, I succeeded in, in climbing it, 
cautiously grasping roots and resting by bushes till I safely reached the top. And there, to avoid a village, I had to keep crawling slowly along the brush near the sea on the top of that great ledge of rock, a feat I could never have accomplished even in daylight without the excitement. But I felt that I was supported and guided in all that life-or-death journey by my dear Lord Jesus. I had to leave the shore and follow up the bank of a very deep ravine to a place shallow enough for one to cross, and then through the bush away for the shore again. By holding too much to the right, I missed the point where I had intended to reach it. Small fires were now visible through the bush. I heard the voices of the people talking in one of our most heathen villages. And quietly drawing back, I now knew where I was and easily found my way towards the shore. But on reaching the great rock, I could not in the darkness find the path down again. I groped about till I was tired. I feared that I might uh, stumble over and be killed, or if I delayed till daylight, that the savages would kill me. I knew that one part of the rock was steep sloping with little growth or none thereon, and I searched about to find it resolved to commend myself to Jesus and slide down thereby, that I might again reach the shore and escape from my life. Thinking I had found this spot, I hurled down several stones and listened for their splash, that I might judge whether it would be safe. But the distance was too far for me to hear or judge. At high tide, the sea there was deep, but at low tide I could wade out of it and be safe. The darkness made it impossible for me to see anything. I let go of my umbrella, shoving it down with considerable force, but neither did it send me back any news. Feeling sure, however, that this was the place I sought, and knowing that to await the daylight would be certain death, I prayed to my Lord Jesus for help and protection and resolved to let myself go. First, I fastened all my clothes as tightly as I could so as not to catch on anything, then I lay down at the top on my back, feet foremost, holding my head downwards on my breast to keep it from striking on the rock, and then, after one cry to my Savior, having let myself down as far as possible by a branch, I at last let go, throwing my arms forward and trying to keep my feet well up. A giddy swirl as if flying through the air took possession of me, a few moments seemed an age. I rushed quickly down and felt no obstruction until my feet struck into the sea below. Adoring and praising my dear Lord Jesus, who had ordered it so, I regained my feet. It was low tide. I had received no injury. I recovered my umbrella. And wading through, I found the shore path easier and lighter than the bush had been. The very darkness was my safety, preventing the natives from rambling about. I saw no person to speak to till I reached a village quite near to my own, 15 or 20 miles from where I had started. I here left the sea path and promised some young men a gift of fish hooks to guide me the nearest way through the bush to my mission station, which they gladly and heartily did. I ran a narrow risk in approaching them, they thought me an enemy, and I arrested their muskets only by a loud cry, I am Missy, don't shoot, my love to you, my friends. Praising God for his preserving care, I reached home and had a long, refreshing sleep. The natives, on hearing next day how I had 
come all the way in the dark, exclaimed, Surely any of us would have been killed. Your Jehovah God alone thus protects you and brings you safely home. With all my heart, I said, Yes. Yes, and he will be your protector and helper too, if only you will obey and trust in him. Certainly that night put my faith to the test. Had it not been the assurance that I was engaged in his service and that in every path of duty he would carry me through or or dispose of me therein for his glory, I, I could never have undertaken either journey. St. Paul's words are true today and forever. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. Amen. Next time will be chapter 28, the plague of measles. Thank you for listening. I do like hearing from you, and I want to send a shout out to my friend Peter in Vancouver, from whom I just did hear. And uh, it's good to receive these kind of encouragements from you. Please contact me with your questions, your comments at bob.j.falconer.72 at gmail.com. Look around the site. I do believe you're going to find much that's going to be helpful to you. There are readings from great preachers, stories from the persecuted church, Bible studies, just a whole lot more. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.